Last Sunday, we're in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. He's making his way around the world. Cool things are happening. God's working. God's ministering. He finds himself arriving in Ephesus. He leaves Ephesus after just a very short time. Because his heart was set to get to Jerusalem for the feasts. So he goes from Ephesus after just a quick stop, leaving behind Aquila and Priscilla. He gets to Jerusalem for the feast. He offers this sacrifice, this vow he had made, cutting his hair off. You can read about it in the first several verses uh, of chapter 19, the end of chapter 18. Goes up to Antioch, his home church, touches base, sets off on a third missionary journey with the direct intention to get back to Ephesus. So he goes through Galatia and Pergia. He makes his way back to Ephesus. Now, we looked at Paul's first workings there upon his return, third missionary journey. And in regards to the the opening, we kind of set aside establishing a profile of the city of Ephesus for this morning. And so if you would indulge me, Ephesus, very interesting city. The origins of this Hellenistic city date back as far as the 10th century BC, which would place it in the time frame of King David and King Solomon and Saul. For our purposes, we don't really care too much about Ephesus in the 10th century, so we kind of pick things up. When Caesar Augustus made Ephesus the capital of Asia Minor after he ascended to power in 27 BC. And as a result of becoming both the seat of the Roman governor and the city of banking and commerce for the whole region, Ephesus almost immediately entered a zenith, an era of prosperity. According to the Greek historian Strabo, Ephesus was second in importance and size only to Rome. The city was famed for two particular archaeological achievements, building achievements. Ephesus boasted an open-air amphitheater that was capable of holding 25,000 spectators, the ruins of which you're seeing on the screen. Secondly, Ephesus was the location of the famous temple of Artemis, Diana, and Roman mythology. This temple was one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Though that's simply a replica, recent archaeological digs have revealed that the temple itself was an astounding 450 feet long, 225 feet wide. It was 60 feet high with more than 127 columns supporting its ornate roof. Antipur of Sidon, who compiled the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world, describes this temple. He says, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, onto which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the sun, the huge labor of the high pyramids in the vast tomb of Molossus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on art so grand. Because Diana was the goddess of the hunt, she had this power to communicate and control animals. And 
she was also the virgin goddess of childbirth and women. And since Ephesus was the location of this incredible temple dedicated to her worship, beyond everything else, beyond being a political center, beyond being a commercial center, Ephesus was a religious center for paganism, for the pagan worship of Artemis, Diana. Aside from temple prostitution, the worship of Diana was steeped in mysticism and the occult. That said, while Ephesus was as lost as you could ever imagine, as lost as you could be, even upon Paul's first stop there, we see an incredible openness to the gospel. It's been said, where it's the darkest, the light shines the brightest. Ephesus is a wonderful example. So we're told that when Paul went into the synagogue, chapter 19, verse 8, and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, Paul departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning instead daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. As was his custom, Paul begins his evangelical outreach by focusing first on the local Jewish population that lived in Ephesus. We're told he visited the synagogue. It's what he typically did upon arriving at a city. Luke tells us that for three months, Paul would reason and persuade with the Jews concerning, quote, the things of the kingdom of God. However, as was normally the way it happened, some of these Jews were hardened and did not believe, literally refused to believe, and then spoke evil of the way, which was a direct reference to Christianity. Don't forget it was called the way before it was called Christianity. As a result of this, Paul departed. He left the synagogue. He withdrew the disciples, those that were interested in being taught, and he sets up shop in the school of Tyrannus. <laughs> Not a school you want to go to. Tyrannus literally means the tyrant. It's the school of the tyrant. I know some of you feel like you, that, that was your middle school experience. It was the school of the tyrant. But he goes, he sets up shop in this school, and he ministers there. He teaches for two years. Now, according to non-biblical Greek manuscripts that date back to this time period in Ephesus, the typical work day looked much different than it does in ours. This part of the world has incredibly high temperatures and suffocating humility, uh, not humility, humidity. <laughs> and because of this climate, this temperature, in the middle of the day, it was just brutal to try to work. And so what would happen is that the laborers, the students, would break from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So they'd work the morning, they'd take a break for lunch, they'd wait till it cooled off, then they'd go back to work about four o'clock. It's like a siesta, not a bad way to work. And it would appear in context to what we just read that it was during this five-hour break, sometime between 11 and 4, that the Apostle Paul would rent space 
in the school of Tyrannus to teach. Our text is clear that Paul, for two years, reasoned daily in this school. Now imagine this for a moment. Paul taught six days a week, five hours a day, for two years in the school of Tyrannus. That means that in two years, Paul logged 3,120 hours of teaching time. Beyond, beyond that, as we're about to see, Paul, while in Ephesus, supported himself as a tent maker. So imagine Paul's day. He'd wake up like everyone else in the morning, and he would go work, physical labor. He would make tents to provide for himself. Everyone would clock out for lunch at 11. Paul would grab a burrito, head to the school of Tyrannus, grabbing a little fast food on his way. He gets there, he opens the doors, and he teaches for five hours. Tell us time to go back to work. He closes up shop. The students are coming back to the school anyway. He goes back and works on tents till it's too dark. He does this every day, six days a week. He probably took the Sabbath off for two years. Now, that's pretty awesome. Like, that takes some dedication. And keep in mind that they say for every hour of public speaking, it's the equivalent of about eight hours of manual labor. I mean, speaking in front of people, teaching people, it's a physical, spiritual, emotionally draining experience. So Paul's working in the morning, teaches for five, it's a five-hour Bible study. And then he goes back to work, and he does this every day. Like, it took dedication on the part of Paul, and yet, not only is the investment great for the apostle, but you would also have to credit the students, right? Because they'd have to exert the same amount of energy. The students, whether they're in class to 11 and then back to class at four, or they're working to 11 or they're back to work, they're going to a Bible study for five hours in the middle of the day. The Ephesian church gathered faithfully six days a week for a five-hour church service of heavy theology. Is there any wonder that the results were that in Asia, because of all the things happening in Ephesus, everyone, Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord Jesus? Some of you complain when I go over 50 minutes, yet alone five hours every day. But we're told, verse 11, that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. Now, before we get to the particulars of what's happening in our text, you need to keep something in mind. That Luke sets the context for this passage by communicating that during this season of teaching ministry in Ephesus, that God, no, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, it, it should be pointed out that all miracles are by definition unusual, <laughs> right? I mean, a miracle by itself is an unusual act. So think of it that in Ephesus, not only do we have unusual things happening, but we have unusually 
unusual things happening as a result of this particular ministry of Paul. Aside from the miracles performed directly by the hands of Paul, we're also told that handkerchiefs, or literally uh, sweatbands, or aprons brought from his body. So remember, Paul's working. So handkerchiefs, sweatbands, or aprons were used in miraculous ways, specifically healing people of diseases and exercising evil spirits. Now the text seems to imply, and this is important for clarification, that what was taking place here through the handkerchiefs and the aprons was all happening independent of Paul's direct involvement. So there were miracles happening by his hand, but there were also these other miracles happening through these uh, pieces of cloth. Now understand, we're told that, that they were taken and they healed the sick and Luke as a doctor affirms it. So we can't debate whether or not these handkerchiefs, these aprons, these sweatbands, that there was some type of miraculous power being demonstrated. But keep in mind, Paul's not initiating it. It's just happening. Like literally, demons are being exercised. People are being healed of sickness. It's a really weird thing, which kind of requires us to ask why God would work through such a superstitious way. Why, why did it happen this way? Why did God allow it to happen? I think, especially, and keep in mind, this is a culture steeped in the occult and mysticism, the worship of Diana, that God allowed this to happen because he wanted to make sure there was no mistaking the origin of power. The origin of power was not Paul, but was instead Jesus and whom Paul preached. So Paul's not using these handkerchiefs. He's not using these aprons. He's not using them to perform miracles. He's doing them by his hand. But God is allowing people to basically steal them. That's what's happening. Paul goes to work. He leaves to go teach. As he's gone, people recognizing that there's power working in Paul are stealing things from his workshop, taking them to unleash some type of power to heal. See, the purpose of God allowing this was to refocus their attention off of the conduit of healing and instead onto the source, that being Jesus. Think of it like this. If God can use the likes of you and I to be his conduit of healing, <laughs> it's entirely possible that he could use an old dirty rag because it's not the rag and it's not you. It's God, it's Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit working in a unique way. Now, before we move on, have you ever heard of the green prosperity prayer handkerchief? Apparently, the green prosperity prayer handkerchief, which I went onto the website two weeks ago and ordered one for free because I thought it would be a fun prop and I have not received it yet, I don't understand. I thought it would be great. I could, I could actually bring it out and say, the green prosperity prayer handkerchief sent to me by Don Stewart, the apostle. The, the website says that Don Stewart um, has personally prayed over, blessed, and anointed these handkerchiefs so that they have miraculous power to heal and to give prosperity, which is why they're green, by the way. 
because money's green. Like that's what the website, like one of the frequently asked questions is like, why is it green? And they're like, because money is green. And it's like, oh, well, that's the most logical thing on the website, which is shocking. Sadly, I bring this up because on his website, Don Stewart specifically points to this passage of scripture as being his biblical justification to peddle heresy and take advantage of the poor and the sick. Contrary to what Stewart claims, Paul was not sending out prayer handkerchiefs. They were being stolen, which would be an entirely different ministry methodology for Don Stewart to be like, I can't send them out, but you can come into our warehouse and steal whatever you'd like. It's ridiculous. It, it's, it doesn't fit in regards to scripture. To his credit, they do send them out free, but you don't get them in the mail. I don't know when they come, but I have read that not only do you get your green prayer handkerchief, but you also get a packet of fundraising information, which, you know, when you're sick, that's exactly what you want to do. Give money to someone else other than doctors. Anyway, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which if you're ever going to start a punk band, that's a great name for a punk band. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. That's a great name for a band. Someone should take that. So the itinerant Jewish exorcists and their roadies, they took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, we're told that there were seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Which is never what you want to hear from a demon, by the way. Like, that's not a good, like, what comes next is never good. So we're told that the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I mean, this is like a WWE wrestling match happening here in the 19th chapter of Acts. I love this story. So we have this unique, weird like season of ministry. Weird things are happening. It's an admission. And in the midst of it, we're told that some of these exorcists, these Jewish exorcists, recognizing that Paul had power and that his power came when he claimed the name of Jesus, decide to kind of steal his trade craft. So they're thinking, wow, Paul uses the name of this Jesus guy and real things are happening and we're exorcists. And you know what? Maybe we ought to employ that particular model these seven sons of this Jewish priest. Now, get the scene. So they get the call, you know? It's like Ghostbusters. There's a demon-possessed man in the house. They're like, we're on it. You know, they, they jump in the, the mystery van. They drive over. They get out, they run in. They're gonna encounter this demon-possessed man. 
They're like, this is a great opportunity to try out some new techniques. So they approach the man, and they declare, we exercise you by the name of Jesus. And just so you don't mistake, maybe it's a different Jesus, the one whom Paul preaches. <laughs> and in response, the evil spirit, well, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the demon not only refuses to leave his host, but drop kicks all seven sons of Sceva. Now this statement, <laughs> it's interesting. Because in response to their invoking of the name of Jesus and Paul, you know, it says, you know, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but that's actually a little bit misleading because in the Greek, when it says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, it's two different Greek words for know. When, when, when the demon says, Jesus, I know, he's literally saying, like, I know Jesus by experience. Like, Jesus and I, man, we got a long history. I've known that guy for quite some time. Jesus, I am very, very familiar with. Paul, I know, which is like in lesser degree. Basically, it's kind of like, I know of Paul kind of by proximity. Like, I really know Jesus. This guy, Paul, like I've heard a lot about him. But you, I got no idea who in the world you are. And so, the demon beats the snot out of him. Now, I, I just want to make a couple quick observations and then we're going to continue on. But from this text, the first observation is that to be used by God is to be known by the devil. I hope you know that. To be used by God is to be known by the devil. Paul, here in Ephesus, he's being used by God in incredible ways. Such incredible ways that his reputation was even spreading among the community of demons. Like, that's pretty awesome. Like, understand that when you're making an impact that rings out in the halls of heaven, you're also garnering attention in the courts of hell. So to be used by God is to be known by the devil. They knew Jesus, and they knew of Paul. But, you know, I can't, can't help but also observe that there is a very real difference between knowing of Jesus and knowing Jesus. Like these seven sons of Sceva, they knew of Jesus. But that had a radically different power than knowing Jesus. Like they found out the hard way that supernatural power is not found in religion or claiming the name, but in a relationship with Jesus, claiming the man. Finally, I hope you realize the devil is not afraid of mortal men. Like, so, you know, sometimes, like even within Christianity, we get ourselves a little, a little misguided when we think we can rebuke the devil. Like, God created the angelic host, and then he created us. And in the angelic host, these fallen demons, they're supernatural creatures, like, like, you are no match to them. Like, if you try to take on the, the darkness of this age on your own, 
you will get smacked around. Like these seven men had no ability at all to stand against one demon-possessed man. Beats them to a bloody pulp where they have to escape, stark naked, running down the street like Will Ferrell in old school. I mean, they are, they have lost their minds here, but they thought, well, we can, we can take on, right? We can take on the devil. No, you can't. No one can. And yet, Scripture tells us what? That he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. Like, the, the, the power to confront the darkness, the power to confront the enemy is not in you. It's not in your flesh and blood. It's in the spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Who is in you? Well, he's no match. He's strong. He's powerful. Not you. You know, uh, Paul would write to the, this Ephesian church and he would say something interesting. He talks a lot, by the way, of spiritual warfare and the book of Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians. And when you read through his experience here, that makes sense. But he says, towards the end of his, his letter, Ephesians 6, verses 12 and 13, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And you have to kind of read the rest of the chapter to, to understand what all of that is that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Well, this whole event, it became known, we're told, to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Word spread. It's not just hitting the, the Ephesian Enquirer, like legitimate news sources are covering this particular story. And you can imagine why. And we're told that as a result of the spreading of what's taken place, that fear fell on all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of these burned books. It totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily, and prevailed. This became known to all. What became known? It appears that it was more than just the butt kicking of the seven sons of Sceva by this demon possessed man, but what seemed to spread throughout all of the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus was the reality that even demons knew of Paul and Jesus. This man that Paul had come to town preaching, even the demonic realm, the occult was no match for that man. Like that's what's spreading here. And in our text, we have five immediate responses to the power being demonstrated through the name of Christ. We're told first that fear fell on all of them. Please understand, this, was, this word fear, it's more than just respect. It's not that, wow, they really respected this church. They respected Paul. No, the Greek word is phobos, from which we get our word phobia. It literally means that which strikes terror. Like people were horrified. They were freaked out. Please understand, a real moving of God's word will yield one of two things. It will either yield faith in the receiver or fear in the rejecter. 
Why? Because the power is undeniable. The second thing we see is that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So so fear fell on everyone, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. This word magnified, it means to make great or to esteem highly. In Ephesus, whether you were a believer or an unbeliever, everyone knew of and respected the name of the Lord Jesus. It was a name you did not take lightly. There was uh, an awareness of the name, a power in the name. You know, there's power in the name of Jesus, even if you're not a believer. Like, have you ever, have you ever wondered that like, even your agnostic or atheist friends, when, when, they, when they do something to hurt themselves or they get upset, that they, that they don't even believe in Jesus, but they will use his name in vain, right? They will do something to harm themselves and out comes their mouth, Jesus Christ. You hear it on on television shows. And it's like, that's so strange to me because clearly you're using that, that name because there's power there, because there's a release of some kind that you're getting when those words come out of your mouth. You might not believe him, you might reject him, but you still are recognizing there's power you know, no one ever like stubs their toe and they're like, Mohandas Gandhi or Buddha. Like no one uses like Muhammad. No one uses other names. Like isn't that, start Joseph Smith. <laughs> like there's no power there. He was a creepy treasure hunter, you know, like, like weird. But people use the name of Jesus, right? And that's what we're, that's what we're understanding here in this culture. Man, there was fear, but there was like, that's a name that there's weight. Why? Because the seven sons of Sceva had tried to use the name. Paul would, it would exercise demons, heal people. They did, it didn't work out so well. People were scared of the name. It didn't roll off the tongue. We're also told that many of those who practice magic brought their books together and burned them. Okay. Admittedly, I'm a little uneasy about this because historically, book burnings don't exactly conjure up positive connotations, right? You get like mental images of, of the Nazis, right? Burning books, like book burning ceremonies, like don't strike a real positive chord. And not only that, like even within Christian circles, like we've had like weird trends where it's like, you know, the youth group community. It's like, we should burn all of our secular CDs. It's like, some of them you should, not because they're secular, but because this is bad music. But the rest of them, as your youth pastor, I'll just take and rip onto my computer, you know, for later. Like, it's just like, like we, we go through these phases where it's like, we get into this mode where it's like, book burn. And, and man, that like, ooh. Like that reaction to burn books, like that's weird. And yet, what's taking place in Ephesus is really different on, on like many significant levels. So your first reaction to reading this is like, yeah, I don't like that. Book burning, that was a result. But, but no, it's different. I'll explain first. This was not, they were not burning books 
to silence ideas. It was to eliminate the demonic. Like we know through first account extra biblical sources that the occult was so prevalent in Ephesus because of the worship of, of, of Diana that one of the top selling books, very possibly this book that's being referenced, it was known as the book of Ephesian spells. It was a witchcraft book that people practicing witchcraft would use to conjure spells, the demonic. Like it would seem that in light of Paul's ministry and the power demonstrated in Jesus, that those, note the context, those who practice magic saw this book for what it really was, a dangerous pathway into the occult. Which is why they were not like, let's take all of these books to the thrift store. I know I can't have it, let's goodwill it. Man, these CDs have a power, I should give them to my friend. Like, like this was occultism, it was witchcraft, it was demonic, it was a gateway. And thus they're like, we gotta get rid of these things. We're told that the value of all of the books that had been burned totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. It's been estimated that in this culture, one piece of silver was the equivalent of like a day's wage. 50,000 pieces of silver, that's 50,000 days of work. Today's market, that, that's probably valued about $4.5 million. Like what's happening here is a significant thing, but they're doing it not to silence ideas, but to eliminate the mnemonic. Secondly, what makes this different is that it wasn't mandated by anyone. Like the passage doesn't open where Paul's like, God's doing work, cool things are happening, now take those books and let's burn them. Like, no, this is an organic thing that's happening independent of like anyone's direct involvement. It was a voluntary expression. It wasn't mandated by anyone. No one was telling them that they had to burn the books wasn't organized by Paul, it was organic. Those who practice magic burn these books and you should understand that for them, I think it was repentance and action. Like, you know when you burn something, a book? Like it's kind of a complete act. Like you're not going back after you've burnt the book. Like you're not gonna read it. Like you could keep all the ashes together but the you can't read them. Like burning a book is a complete act. It's done. It happens. It's over. And you know, in this instance, for these folks, burning this particular book was their way of turning from their past life in such a way that they could never return. And, and you know what? I think that that's a very important lesson that should be discussed and it doesn't happen enough. You know, one of the reasons that many believers fall away, some of you have fallen away in the past. We all know these people. But one of the reasons believers fall away is that they leave too many open doors to the former life when they first come to Christ. Like instead of coming to Christ and just diving in, they wait in. Instead of diving head first, they dabble. They don't fully commit. So inevitably, when their new life in Christ hits its first snag, 
it's so easy to slip right back into the former way of doing things. And for these Ephesians, they didn't want that to even be a possibility. So they burned these books. We can never go back because we burnt them. We're forsaking all, we're following Jesus, we're going all the way, cutting ties. In his famous book, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis, writing as an elder demon, giving advice to his young protege, he wrote, let me read this quote, it's up on the screen. He says, humans are amphibians, half spirit, half animal. As spirits, they belong to the internal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. Basically, it's easy to fall back into old habits, former patterns. As a matter of fact, that's actually the most natural thing that happens with this fallen flesh if we don't safeguard against it. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. And because it's so easy for this to fall back, you know, we were told that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Because that's the case, it's often wise that we burn bridges to eliminate the very option of retreat. In Sun Chu's book, The Art of War, he explains the logic behind the decision of, of history's greatest conquerors to burn their boats at the risk of being killed by enemy, uh, enemy hands. Like Cortez, when he came to Mexico, he burnt the boats and they're like, ah, like that's our escape. And he's like, nope, it's victory or, or death. Alexander the Great did the same thing with Persia. Sun Chu, he says, men did these type of things because it was simply to eradicate any notion of retreat from the minds of their troops so that they could commit themselves unwaveringly to the cause, victory. Defeat wasn't an option at all. Please consider this morning what bridges you might be keeping open to the past life that might very well facilitate your undoing. Now, now I'm not saying like you come to Christ and now you can't be friends with any of your former buddies. But you know what I mean? Sometimes we leave a bridge open, an out, an escape route, a Facebook friend. You know, we just kind of got buried. But we know if, if things go wrong, I can, my supplier, my drinking buddy. There are times, friend, that if you don't want defeat, that you have to cut a bridge. For these Ephesians, they had to burn these books. But what is it for you? The flesh is weak, and we hold on to these things, don't we? We do, don't we? This morning, you should let them go. Fourth, we see that many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Like this phrase would be, better be translated that many that believed came. Like, which is kind of gives it a whole new context, doesn't it? 
Like it would seem that this incredible demonstration of power, the power of God, manifested through Paul, spawned even Christians to a renewed seriousness concerning their faith. Many that believed, their believers, came confessing and telling their deeds. You see, this is what happened when Paul and his life upped the ante. And how did they get serious? Like they see what's happening, they know the stakes are high, it's all been elevated. I gotta up my game, man. This is real, this is life or death. This is spirits and principalities. Like I can't like halfway do this. I gotta go all the way. So how did these Christians make the decision to up it? Well, we're told they came confessing and telling their deeds. Now, I I need to take a moment here and explain what confession and the life of the believer is in order to contrast what it is not. In 1 John 1 verse 9, we're told that if we confess our sins, Christians, if we confess our sins, he, speaking of Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, while it's true that confession in the life of the unbeliever is the essential first step, the essential component of repentance, most misunderstand what John is saying with this exhortation to confess sin. In the Greek, the word confess literally means to say the same as. Now, to this point, David Guzik correctly observes that, quote, When we confess our sin, we are willing to say and believe the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. To say the same as. That's what confession is. Now with this in mind, understand, and I think this is revolutionary for many of you, the purpose of confession as a Christian, it is not to inform God of your sin, but rather to remind yourself of Christ's atonement. It's not as though you come to God and you confess sin and God's up in heaven, he turns to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is like, I was totally out of the loop on that one. Like, oh my goodness, I'm really glad you let me know you did that because I had not the slightest idea. No, like we don't come confessing to inform God. We come confessing to remind myself of something very important. Sure, confession helps me acknowledge that my struggle with the flesh, you know, I'm a moron, I'm an idiot, it happens. But confession, more importantly, serves to refocus my attention on the source of victory, which is not myself, but rather Jesus' work on the cross. Confession, to see the same as. Confession helps me see my sin the way God sees my sin, right? And how is that? Paid for by the blood of Christ. He didn't see it. It's been paid for. You come with a debt, and he's like, wait a second, that debt's been satisfied. Confession helps me see my sin as the way God does. Wait a second, I've already been forgiven. But then confession also helps me see myself 
the way God does. My sin, paid for. Me, (laughs) justified. Righteous by faith in Jesus. As the Catholic Church teaches, confession, it is not about obtaining the forgiveness of God. For when I place my faith in Jesus and his work for me on the cross, I am permanently forgiven by God specifically because the debt for my sin required by God was permanently satisfied. It explains that why for the believer, our sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven and forgotten. The Bible tells us that our sin is buried in the deepest part of the ocean, that it's been cast as far as the east is to the west, which is a circle, never, never stops. It's a permanent act. It's done. What Jesus did, all of my sin has been paid for. I've been cleansed, washed white as snow. I've been forgiven. Confessing sin, it's important in the life of the believer because it helps a Christian avoid the natural condemnation that easily surfaces when I inevitably fall short of the glory of God. In the moment of failure, confession allows a person to remember, confess your sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't happen when I confess. That happens when I believe in faith in Jesus and his atonement on my behalf. Literally, confession reminds me. Confess your sin, why? So that you might remember that God is presently being faithful and just to forgive in the light of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins paid for by Jesus is an enduring work, friend, not a temporary one. I don't come to inform God of my sin. That's not the purpose of confession. I come to confess, to readjust my focus on Jesus and the fact that he's already paid for that sin and he's already forgiven me of that sin. And when he sees me, he doesn't see that sin. In James 5, verse 16, Christians are exhorted to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now note, in context, James James is not saying that healing is found when we confess our sins to one another, but that by confessing sins to someone else, we allow that person the opportunity to remind us of our lasting source of healing. Friend, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. From what? The law of sin and the law of death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. I'd encourage you to read the rest of the chapter. It's pretty awesome. Now, I want to point out this morning that this is why we close our service. By providing you the opportunity, the chance to come forward and confess your sins to one of our elders and take communion. Understand, our elders are not here to lay a guilt trip upon you. They're not here so that when you come and you confess, they're like, I'm so disappointed in you. 
I, I, just, I just thought you just had way more potential than that. No one would come down, right? <laughs> like, the purpose is not to lay a guilt trip or to give you a way of penance. Oh, that was, man, that sin, it's a big one. That sin, wow. You know what? That sin's so big that what Jesus did on the cross, I'm not even sure that that totally takes care of it. So you need to to throw up three Hail Marys and go mow your neighbor's yard. You laugh, but there are churches that do that. As a matter of fact, half of Christianity does that. Wait a second. Our elders aren't here to forgive you. I know Larry kind of has this fatherly feel, but he's not here to be like, oh, thank you for confessing that. I forgive you. Me and Jesus forgive you. Now, the reason that our elders are available for you to come and confess sin is for one reason. It's they're here to remind you as to the source of your healing by pointing you to the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus. When you come and confess, our elders are instructed to open their arms and to grab you and to hug you and to say, you're forgiven. You've been set free. You're allowing this to weigh you down. It's okay. It's been paid for. You see that? You see the broken body, the blood of, that was spilt so that you're free. You can confess so that now I can remind you, I can point, like, guess what? That's not how God sees you. You're righteous. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. He sees you. He sees Jesus as covering. That's what confession is. Confession is to remind myself of where healing is. I'm not healed because I confess. I'm healed because Jesus died on my behalf. So should there be any fear to confess? Not at all, friend. Not at all. God's not disappointed in you. God's not up in heaven thinking, my goodness, I died for that person. I can't believe they do such a thing. No, he died for you because he knew you'd do such a thing. It's grace. Where we're told, finally, that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, this word, so the word, so. It implies more than if Luke had just used the word and. Like the idea is that the prevailing of the word of the Lord was directly attributed to the things that have come before, all the things we've looked at. Because all these things are happening, so as a result, the word prevailed. In Ephesus, we see what can only be described, and I'll steal David Guzik's sermon title on this passage because it describes it. It is radical revival. Second most prominent city in the whole world, steeped in the occult, is affected, so affected by this church that the entire surrounding region was also impacted. But in closing, I want to point out what it was specifically about this Ephesian church 
that initiated such an impact. We rolled the video as the bumper into the Bible study this morning because our whole purpose in studying the book of Acts is to establish a blueprint for the church. Like we don't want to emulate or model any other ministry but this one. That doesn't mean we're perfect because this one wasn't. But we want to go back to scripture to establish like what should our church be in light of this? The original design before we all messed it up. It's the whole purpose. I want our church, I want to see our church make an impact, don't you? I want to see God use this church to not just impact this area, but a region around it. Not that it was Zach or Andy or anything, but it was, G, it was a Jesus movement, a moving of the spirit of God. It wasn't, oh, you put up a billboard or you did a mass marketing campaign. That's why your church, no, no. It was simply a moving of the Spirit. It's the only place you can point it to. That's what I want to be a part of. And with that in mind, as we look at this church, just in recapping, there are five things that have to happen for that to be a reality. First, Christians contrasted society with another way. Did you notice that in the beginning? That they were critical of these people and they just called them the way. The way. You, you don't call someone that if they're doing what you're doing. This is another way. And I should just ask you, is there a way about you that's different from everyone else? Is there a way? Do we contrast society? Is there something about who we are that people can see and say that's different and that's authentic and that's real and I'm curious. Secondly, Christians possessed a hunger for the teaching of God's word. Five hours a day for two years. Six days a week, that's, that's crazy. But there was a hunger, an excitement and Paul taught and they were fed and it spread. But you know every revival that we ever see throughout church history, there are two things always have to be a part, a return to the teaching of God's word, and secondly, which leads to our third point, the Holy Spirit, a moving of the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit was doing something unusual. Fourth, everyone was aware of the spiritual realm. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the eternal because we get distracted by the temporary. It's so easy to get just mired down in today that I lose sight that today the whole purpose is for eternity. The reason I'm here is for eternity. And finally, people were radically dealing with their sin. People were burning bridges and others were confessing. 